All right, so we are in, coming to the end of Ecclesiastes. It's 12 chapters, and today we're going to finish up chapter 10, jump into chapter 11, and in a couple weeks we will be done with the book. So we are in the section today where Solomon is giving some real super practical wisdom about how to live a wise life. And in, in chapter 10, he gives advice about how to make and manage and multiply money. And the way he does it is not by saying, well, step one, step two, step three. Um, but what he, what he does is he talks about the difference between the fool and the wise person. In fact, in chapter 10, um, here's kind of the outline. He talks about wisdom and foolishness being demonstrated by our walk. And then last week, foolishness and wisdom is demonstrated by our words. And today, he's going to talk about wisdom and foolishness demonstrated by our work and then money is, is a part of that whole thing. So today, we're going to talk about work and money. And um, he really, uh, we, we really could hang everything he says on five hooks. So here are the five words, here are the five buzzwords I want you to leave with today. And um, hopefully you can evaluate your life and how you live your life and manage your money and so forth with these five buzzwords. One is the concept of focus, and I'm, and I'm um, presenting these as verbs. Right? The wise person focuses. They have a heart that serves, so serve. You are to work hard. He encourages taking some risk. And he talks about diversifying. So we'll hit on, on all five of these words. So the first thing um, he talks about is focus. Right? Ecclesiastes 10.15, The toil of the fool wearies him. So um, the, the fool... He's exhausted after work, for he does not know the way to the city. What do you mean? Well, his, his task is here. Go to the city. He's on a, on a mission to go to the city. But he, he's so wearied from just taking a trip to, the, to town that he's exhausted. Why? Well, here's, a, here, here's something about a fool. A fool is characterized... By distraction. What should be a simple trip for him turns into uh, an exhausting adventure because he's, I, th I think of Doug the dog in Up. Squirrel! Right? Even a simple trip turns into uh, uh, an adventure, an exhausting adventure because of distraction. Now, before we're too hard on this guy, um, we are the most distracted generation that's ever lived. Okay? 
uh, they did a survey in England on, um, they just studied people in offices. And here's what they discovered. The average office worker is productive for only three hours a day. So they're getting paid eight hours, but when you really look at the amount of work they accomplish, it's about three hours of work. Why? Well, we have this time-saving thing called the internet that really wastes a lot of our time, right? Uh, email interruptions increase employees' time on tasks by one-third. So a task that should take 40 minutes takes an hour because of the constant email interruptions. And then, let's pick on the millennials and the, and the Gen Zers, all right? I'll pick on them, right? 36% of millennials and Gen Zers admit to spending two hours or more checking their smartphones at work. Right? Are they allowed to have their phones at Mocha? You got to turn them off. See, look at that. There's production. That, Mocha, man, they got it figured out. Turn, turn, put the phones away and soup them up with caffeine. They're working hard over there. So we live awash in a, in, in a world full of distractions. And it takes a, a, a plan to strategically overcome these distractions. And, and the main thing is, you need to focus on the task at hand. Um, let me compare the fool in Ecclesiastes to um, Jesus sending out his apostles on a mission. In Luke 10, he's actually sending out 72 disciples who are going to go to a bunch of cities. So the, the task is the same. Go to the city. But look what he says to his apostles. Carry no money bag. In other words, you're going to have to trust God to provide. No knapsack, no sandals. And then, then I found this one really strange. And greet no one on the road. Now, wouldn't you think that on a mission trip, he would say, oh, and talk to everybody you can. That's not the mission. This isn't evangelize everybody you can. This is go to this particular city, set up camp there, preach, and then move on to the next city. And part of the instructions, be so focused that you don't even talk to anybody on the road. Here's a man with a mission who's not distracted. Okay, um, so kind of one of my little hobbies is I like to pick up occasionally a business book on productivity and time management. And um, boy, I've wasted a lot of time on time management. <laughs> but there's a, there's a book called The One Thing. Have any of you seen this book? Um, the Surprising... Surprisingly simple truth um, behind extraordinary results. All right, so let me, let me save you the money here. Um, basically, the idea is this. He mentions a guy named Pareo. Pareo did 
um, efficiency studies about people's lives and how much time they put into things. And the Pareto principle is this, that what they've found is 20% of our effort produces 80% of the results. So you get about 80% of your, your life done with 20% of your effort. And then you spend the remaining 80% of your effort and you only get 20% results. This is true of cutting the grass. This is true of, um, you know, at, at work. This is true of school. This is, so 20% produces 80% of the results. Now, the whole theory then behind this is this. Quit doing that 80%. It's not getting hardly anything done. Or delegate it or pay somebody to do it and then focus on the 20% and you will be an efficient manager of your time. Now you say, but I don't, it's not true. This can't happen. I don't know how to do that. Well, let me give you another graph. Um, this is kind of a classic little tool in uh, Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Person. Um, you can divide your life into four quadrants, all right? And the top, uh, the, the top is those things that are urgent or not urgent. And on the side axis, things that are important or not important. Everything in your life can fit into one of those quadrants. Now, um, let's take not urgent and not important. Quadrant four. What would fit into that category? Well, how about this? The average American watches four hours of TV a day. So I know, I know there are Christians who go, I just, I don't have time for Bible study. But they can quote from every episode of The Office. Right? Um, they can, be, they're binging and watching Netflix all the time. Oh, I don't have time. Do you know that in a 65-year-old person's life, do you, know, do you know how much time they devoted to watching TV? Nine hours, nine years with no sleep. Nine. So when we say, oh, we don't have time, really? You just cut out TV. And I'm not saying you have to do that, but we, we waste a lot of time in quadrant four. Um, then what about urgent and not important? Wouldn't that be about 93% of your emails? Urgent, it's urgent, you've got to respond now. Really? It's, so the, the internet has this sense of urgency, but is it really all that important? Okay. Then there's important and not urgent. Now here's a problem there. Here's what we do with that. We go, oh, well, it's, since it's not urgent, I'll forget it. No, no, no. What you do is you don't do it right away, but pull out your Google Calendar and schedule it. That way you won't forget it. Okay? And then left would be that which is urgent and important. And it reduces our schedule down. Now, um, this involves actually coming up with a to-do list. You do do a to-do list, don't you, when you get up in the morning? Okay. Well, here's, here's the essence of this book, The One Thing. You come up with your to-do list, but then you go through it and you figure out those things according to, according to this... You figure out those things that you could do, could do, could do, versus things that you should do. And you, you keep the, the big list, but then you have a secondary list of should, of should do's. And then the big breakthrough in this book, the one thing, 
is do it again. Go through your should-do list, and you start with, say, 25 things. You reduce it to five things, but don't stop there. Go on to your one thing. And if you get that one thing done today, and you do the same exercise tomorrow, don't worry, you're going to get to the thing you missed, your life will be much more efficient and focused. Okay? Now, the thing I missed here, now some of you are going, oh, this is revolutionary, I'm going to change my life. It doesn't work unless you have an overarching purpose. Because how do you know what should be on your, your five list and on your one list? What is your grand overarching purpose in life? For me, it's this. Have I mentioned this guy named Piper? His key thing is God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. I would suggest a great purpose in your life would be to be satisfied in God. Yes, even your lawn care and your business and your spending and your taxes and your laundry, everything should fit under that umbrella and then decide how to get to the one thing today that will get you there. All right? So the first thing Solomon says is don't be a fool, like the guy who's so distracted that he gets lost on the way to town. Focus, and here's, here's some very practical stuff on focus, but it doesn't make sense unless you have an overarching life purpose or your to-do lists are going to change from day to day to day, all right? Next thing Solomon talks about is service. So the verb would be serve. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. And all the commentators say, don't read that as a six-year-old. You could replace it with the word when your king is immature. Okay, so there are kings and world leaders and presidents and you name it who are very immature. Woe woe to the land with immature leaders. And your princes feast in the morning. What does that mean? Their purpose in life is just to feed themselves. Right? Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility. In other words, the prince was trained to be a leader and to serve his people. And now that he's the king, happy are you, O land. And your princes feast at the proper time, at dinner time. For what purpose? For strength and not for drunkenness. You know, there, there are multitudes of people who find themselves in secure positions of leadership. Um, maybe they have tenure at a school. Maybe they've been in Congress for a billion years. Maybe they've inherited a business from their parents. Maybe their leadership position is they're a father or a mother. They just had babies, and they're in a position of leadership. And their attitude is, it's good to be king. And people are here for me. It's all about me. 
me, right? Now, the apostles kind of had this attitude. Jesus chose them, and he talked an awful lot about the kingdom of God and that he was the king. And a lot of times they were arguing about which of them was the greatest. And in one case, um, James and John, their brothers, in, in Mark's gospel it says they go to Jesus and ask if they can sit at his right hand and his left hand. In other words, we would like some high-ranking cabinet positions in your kingdom um, because it would be great, we get to be in charge, and it's pretty cushy. And In fact, in one of the other Gospels, it says that they didn't actually go directly to Jesus. Do you know who they got to ask? Their mother. Now, if you do some detective work, a case can be built that James and John's mother was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So, in essence, they're saying, hey, let's get mom, let's get Jesus' aunt to ask if we can get the cushy jobs. Right? Now, here's the response of the other apostles. And when the ten, so we've got two of the twelve are asking for these positions. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. <laughs> I don't think they were indignant because they go, oh, this is audacious. I think they were indignant because they didn't get there first. Right? And Jesus called them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones, their leaders, exercise authority over them. So this is the, the same scenario Solomon's talking about. I, I'm in my cushy position uh, so people can serve me. But now Jesus turns the tables on, on this whole thing. But it should not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, and now he's going to give the punchline. And what does he say? You want to be great? Must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, the King, right, him, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So um, I found this illustration about D.L. Moody. Uh, a large group of European pastors came to one of D.L. Moody's Northfield Bible Conferences in Massachusetts in the late 1800s. Following the European custom of the time, each guest put his shoes outside his room to be cleaned by the hall servants. But of course, this was America, and there were no hall servants. So I guess over in England, you stay in an inn, you put your shoes out, and the hall servant would, would polish your shoes for you. In the morning, you've got clean shoes. So nobody told them here in America, we don't do that. So there, there's this hall full of dirty shoes from British pastors. Walking the dormitory halls at night, Moody saw the shoes and determined not to embarrass his brothers. He mentioned the need to some ministerial students who were there, 
but met only with silence and pious excuses. So Moody had like interns working under him. And he said, hey guys, you know, the, the British brothers, they, they put their shoes out. Anybody want to clean them? Oh, sorry, busy, busy, busy. Moody returned to the dorm, gathered up the shoes alone in his room, and the world-famous evangelist began to clean and polish all the shoes. Only the unexpected arrival of a friend in the midst of this revealed the secret. When the foreign visitors opened the doors the next morning, their shoes were shined. They never knew by whom. Moody told no one, but his friend told a few people. And during the rest of the conference, different men volunteered to shine the shoes in secret. Right? Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not saying that the leader should only do the most menial jobs and that's all they do. No, you're still to lead. Okay? But the question is, do you lead with a servant attitude? Right? Everybody can tell, you know, look at your boss. Does he or she have the attitude that I'm a big shot and you're here to serve me? Or do they have the attitude that he's there, he or she's there by, for whatever reason, but they're there to serve even the employees? Right? It's all about the attitude. Do you parent as a servant? Are you a boss as a servant? Are you a spouse as a servant? All right? So Solomon says, woe to the country who's got these, you know, you owe it to me attitudes for people in charge. But the godly response is, I'm here to serve. Okay? Let me move on. Number three, we're to work through sloth, laziness. The roof sinks in. And through indolence, laziness, the house leaks. Laziness is rebuked as sinful in Scripture. In fact, the word sluggard is used 14 times in the book of Proverbs. It means the, the person who lets everybody else do the work, and they just aren't a hard worker. Now, some Christians are confused about this whole concept of work and works, right? Because isn't the gospel that you're not saved by works? For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works. So you're not saved by works. But the very next verse, verse 10 in Ephesians 2, says, but you are his workmanship created to do good works. You are not created, or you're not saved, I should say, by works. But when you're saved, guess what? You were saved, you were created to do good works. And part of the good works you're to do is earn a living and work hard. You know, the same people that are told you're not saved by works are told this in 2 Thessalonians, for even when we were with you, 
we would give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let them not eat. Right? One of the, one of the messages of Scripture is Christians should be characterized by those who provide for themselves. Now, there are those who can't do that, and we should have compassion on them. But a work ethic, it's not just a Protestant work ethic, it's a biblical work ethic. Some people have this idea that having to work is the result of, the, of sin entering into the world. It's the result of the fall. No. Before the fall, here in Genesis 2.15, this is before Adam and Eve sinned in chapter 3, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God gave the gift of work before the fall. We are to see it as a gift. Now, because of the fall, it's hard. But work itself is still a gift. Now, Solomon goes on in Ecclesiastes under the same category here of work. He says, bread is made for laughter, so that's my justification. Every meal, there ought to be a joke. Look at my family. They're like, okay, funny boy, right? Um, and wine gladdens life, and I'll let you exegete whatever that means to you. Okay? And then look at this. And money answers everything. What do you do with that? You know, I, um, I've read some commentators and I've listened to sermons where the preachers and the commentators are so shocked by that last phrase, money answers everything, that they conclude, well, well Solomon must be falling back into under-the-sun thinking. Remember, uh, a lot of what's recorded in Ecclesiastes uh, is worldly, secular thinking. And Solomon is quoting it. Then he rescues the thinking with biblical thinking. So a lot of preachers go, oh, well, this is obviously him reverting back to secular thinking. In fact, I heard one preacher, he said, oh, well, this was, this was a, um, a drinking song that they sang in the taverns. I don't know if they had taverns in Israel, but, um, you know, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. And they would all say, yeah, I drink to that. And, we don't know that this was a drinking song, right? Um, when it comes to your roof sinking and your house leaking, one answer is work hard and fix it. Don't be a, a, a slothful person. You know what another answer is? Make enough money that you can pay somebody to fix your roof. In fact, when it comes to problems like that, money answers everything. Working hard and having enough money to fix your house, yes, money is the answer to everything. But isn't money the root of all evil? No. Be, be careful. Okay. It says in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root, not of all evil, but of all kinds of evil. Um, yes, there is a clear warning 
that we are not to turn money into an idol. Money is not to be our God. Okay? It can become our God. People can become addicted to making it, and money is a horrible slave or a horrible taskmaster. Okay? But having put that in perspective, guess what? Money is a tool. It's a good tool to be able to, to use. So let me give you um, just kind of a quick picture uh, of a biblical framework of work and money. Okay? Number one, place your trust in God, not money. You know, what, whatever you place your ultimate trust in is your idol, is your God. Put your trust in God, not money. Having clarified that, you're to work hard. You're not to be a, a, a slothful person. Now, once you make money, and here's the big one, okay, especially young people who you don't have a, a mortgage yet and you don't have a car yet, um, live within your means. That's where we go astray. You know, the, all the, the, financial, uh, the financial guys on the radio, their big thing is get out of debt, get out of debt, get out of debt. Oh, how about don't get into it to, to begin with? So live within your means. Now, that does not mean this. Some people go, oh, live within your means. I make X amount of money in a month. Therefore, living it within my means means I can spend X amount of money because I'm living within my means. no because there's more biblical input here. Next thing would be give generously. So living within your means includes be generous in your giving. Okay? And part of living within your means means saving for the future. Okay? So living within your means, so you're working hard and you're giving to the Lord, giving to the poor, and you're Planning for the future. Proverbs says, go look at the ant. You know what we learn from the ant? During the summer, he works hard, so in the winter, he has a store up. Okay? Now, we're going to go further in Ecclesiastes, and we're going to see two more principles. Principle number one, two, three, four, five, six is invest with some risk. And then finally, diversify your investments and your income. All right, so let's, let's take, talk about risk. So now we, we turn the page and we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Now, let's admit this is a tough, tough one to interpret. What is he talking about here? Well, um, you guys know Dr. Finkbeiner? Okay. Moody professor, he wrote a commentary on this, and he says this. To cast your bread on the surface of the waters is an image from maritime trading, so from, from shipping, okay, which was risky business but could be extremely profitable. The wise investor will not always be adverse to taking risk, especially when there's a genuine possibility of real gain. So, do you know that Solomon, he was the richest man on the planet, and one thing he did was he bought some ships from Spain and sent them out 
to do business with the rest of the world. He invested in maritime trading. In fact, in 1 Kings it says this, For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Go out and trade and bring back gold and silver and peacocks. Okay? And there are still peacocks in Israel today. Right? Thus King Solomon ex- uh, excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. Now, um, what, what I'm going to do here is, is skip from verse 1 down to verse 3, and I'll come back to 2 in a minute. But a, a problem with not taking risks is this. We can be so overly cautious that we're paralyzed. So, so let's zero in here for a second on being overly cautious. Verse 3, he says, If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. Now, so you look up and it looks like it's, it's going to rain, but here's the problem. You don't know if it's going to rain on your field or not. Right? And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. <laughs> tree's going to fall, and you know where it falls? That's where it's going to lie. But you don't know if it's going to lie on your property on, or on your neighbor's property. So here's where he's going, verse 4. He who observes the wind... Will not sow. I mean, if you're always like, oh, it looks like it's going to be windy today. If I sow, if I throw my seed in the air, it might blow away. So I'm not going to do it today. And he who regards the clouds will not, oh, I'm not going to reap today because it looks like it might rain. You can be so overly cautious that you don't ever take any risks at all. And now in verse 5, he returns to the unpredictableness of, of life As you do not know the way the Spirit comes into the bones and the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Just There's mystery involved to God giving life in the womb. I don't understand it, he says. Um, Just like that, you don't understand the wind and the clouds and the rain. But if you sit there and stare at it all the time and you, you're paralyzed because if you make the wrong move, it might, you might be ruined. No, you've got to take some risks. Now, um, while we certainly can apply this to investing, Jesus in the New Testament just assumes that this is true that you're to take some money and invest it to advance the kingdom. And there's the parable of the talents. The king gives three servants some chunks of money. One gets one chunk of money, one gets two, one gets five. And he says, go and put my money to work. Go invest it. And then there's accounting day. And the guy with five says, hey, here's ten. And he's told, well done, good and faithful servant. You've, you've advanced the kingdom. So, so the, the investing principle here is applied now to evangelism and ministry and building the kingdom of God. The guy with the two talents, he says, hey, here's four. And the king says, well done, good and faithful servant. 
and, and he is rewarded. But the guy with one, he didn't invest. He was afraid to take a risk. And he buried his talent. And the king says, you know, you at least could have put it in the bank. You know, down at Chase, you could get a .00001% return at least, right? But he didn't do that. And this is, and I've read this before, but this is from the message. I don't encourage you to buy the message or read the message, but it's fun to occasionally see what the message has to say. This is how the master responds to the, the riskless guy. The master was furious. That's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? That's pretty good, isn't it? Let me read it again. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? Take the talent and give it to the one who risked the most and get rid of this play it safe who won't go out on a limb. Okay? So I think you can apply what Solomon's saying to actual investments. But Jesus takes the principle and applies it to our life in general. What are you risking for the advancement of the kingdom? Or are you playing it super safe so nobody thinks bad of you? All right? One last thing. Solomon talks about diversifying. Diversify. Okay? Give a portion to seven or even to eight. Now you go, what is he talking about? Give a, give, give a percentage to seven or to eight different areas. Why? For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Oh. So here... Now, so, you know, some of you heard the one on risk, and you're like, yes, I'm going to bet it all on, you know, name the product, okay? No, no, no. <laughs> Don't invest it all in crypto, whatever the latest crypto is, okay? Spread it out. Diversify. Why? Because you don't know which one's going to sink. But if you've diversified it, yeah, take some risks, but not with all of it. Okay? Now, um, I, I once had a guy in, in my church who was a professional investor. He, his job was um, estate planning for super rich people. And um, he said, you know, Pastor, let me give you some advice. You pastors, stick, stay in your lane and let us stay in our lane. I go, what do you mean? He goes, oh, well... I heard a pastor once not only talk about the principle of diversification, but then he started handing out stock advice and invest in this and don't invest. He goes, you don't want to go there, and I think that's a smart move, all right? Though you might want to take a look into, no. <laughs> um, here's maybe the best advice. There are people who spend their entire life studying this stuff. Go hire one of them to invest your money, Okay. All right, now, diversify not only your investments, but your source of income. 
Look what he says here, verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed, so go out and do your farming. And at evening, in evening, okay, sun's already down, so you're not farming anymore. At evening, withhold not your hand. Keep working. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Here, here what he's saying is, yeah, have a job and have a side gig in case one goes south. Okay, not bad to have your hand in a number of things. In fact, let me, let me close with this. Um, here's the Proverbs 31 woman. Um, this woman had a bunch of diversity in her streams of income. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. So she feeds her family. Right? She considers a field and buys it. So she's got a little real estate thing going on over here. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She's out there in the dirt, planting a vineyard. She's got a real estate thing. She's got a side vineyard. Right? She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. So she's making something, buying and selling, trading it. Her lamp does not go out at night. So she's up before, you know, before the day. And she's, this is just what Solomon says. Work hard at night. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. So here she takes, she's not just living for money. She's, she's helping the needy. She makes linen garments and sells them. So some kind of garments out of linen. She delivers sashes to the merchants. So she's, she's got a whole line of clothing here. <laughs> right? So, um, and, and, and by the way, the, this woman is, uh, all the ladies, you, you study Proverbs 31, and by the time you're done studying it, you go, I'm a failure. You know, this is perfect woman. Yeah, and, and just so you know, it's an alphabetical acrostic. Every line begins with a different letter of the Hebrew Bible. And yes, it is like the perfect woman. She does Peloton in the morning. And she's a real estate tycoon. And all her kids are homeschooled. And she's the do-do-do-do-do. What are you doing with your life? And you're like, thanks for the Bible study. But <laughs> there is an element here of diversity and several streams of, of income. Now, um, I don't know if any of you did this, but um, do you know that every week, um, Debbie and I work really hard at putting together a bulletin, and then we send it out, and you're all supposed to download your bulletin. Did anybody bring, actually bring the sermon outline today? Debbie did. Okay. <laughs> there, Jeanette brought it. Okay. So at the end here, um, we have a little, little test. You can kind of grade yourself on how you're doing in these five different areas. So on a scale of distracted, Doug the dog, right, to focused, in general, 
how would you rank yourself? Are you a focused or a distracted person? Some of you are like, what? What, what did he say? <laughs> I'm sorry, I was checking my email. And, right. How about on uh, a scale of entitled, I'm here for you to serve me, even at work, right? Versus, no, I have a servant attitude at work, in my family, at church. Then there's lazy versus industrious. Where would you put yourself on that scale? Then there's the super safe person versus you know, risk taker. Not stupid, right? Remember, it's a dangerous world. Solomon said that. When you split logs, you're going to get hit. When you... When you, when you dig through a wall, you'll be bit by a snake, he says. All right, so there's a, not stupid here, but are you so cautious that you, you're paralyzed at times? Or where are you on that scale with, with super cautious to risk taker? And then f- f- finally, um, when it comes to the, the accumulated money you have, do you just keep it in a singular location, in a singular stream? Or are you diversified in income and investment? Okay, So you, you evaluate yourself, and the goal here is to live to the glory of God in a wise way. Um, so when people look at us, they go, hmm, they seem to be a wise person. Where do they get that wisdom? Our God gives it to us. Right? Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, For Solomon, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs and the clear practical wisdom that you give. And uh, Lord, it applies not only to work, but we're to then apply it to the kingdom of God. So Lord, I pray that we would take these principles and evaluate our spiritual lives. And I pray that we would uh, manage all of our resources in such a way that we would hear from you Well done, good and faithful servant. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.